Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very, very, very special guest, Vicki Johnson. Vicki is a former White House staffer and a future author of the picture book Molly's Tuxedo, due out in June 2023 from Little B Books. She's a Lambda Literary Fellow, just like me, shout out, a graduate of Smith College and an MFA candidate at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Vicki, welcome to the show. Yay, thanks for having me. Yay. I am so delighted to have you here. Did I miss anything? No, <laughs> you, very you, you did it. I The MFA is in writing for children and young adults at VCFA. So I just want to point that out. It's a really special program. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. As I mentioned before we started recording, you brought me back into the March family fold. It's been, dare I say, decades. I, I dare say it. Uh, since I read it. <laughs> what is your relationship to little women then, if it's been decades? Yeah, let's talk about it. I'm here to bring the Gen X lesbian flavor to this conversation. <laughs> I was a child of the 70s. I'm sure I read this first, what, 10 years old or younger? I don't know. Loved it. And because I know you talk about the cinematic versions, I grew up watching, because my mom loved these, watching all the old black and white movies. I definitely remember seeing the 1933 version at some point. I did rewatch it because I'm a huge fan of Katherine Hepburn. And so, yeah, there was that. And then, of course, I kept up with all the, the movies that came out, loved Greta Gerwig's version in 2019. And I reread some of it to bring myself back up to speed. Well, I, yeah, I am absolutely thrilled. I am also a huge fan of the 1933 Catherine Hepburn version. There's a real mm-hmm. <laughs> just absolute like butch chaotic energy that she brings to the role that yes. no one else quite gets. And I love it. I love it so much. She's for sure my favorite Joe. Yeah, I think I would agree. I love Saoirse Ronan. I have a, <laughs> I have a customized American girl doll that like is the Saoirse Ronan Joe. But Catherine Hepburn is really, is really something. Um, yeah, let is. me grab Joe for a second, actually. I, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this was a gift, but she's like. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That I is no, I love her so much. <laughs> okay. So again, I have an inkling, but which March sister are you? And again, for the purposes of this podcast, uh, Lori is a March sister. Yeah. Okay. So I am going to say I have two answers. One, as a child, for sure, Joe, because at that point, I'm going to use the word tomboy. It's not my favorite word because it kind of decenters girls, of course, and makes it uh, in relation to boys. But I was called a tomboy a lot growing up. So Joe was definitely the one. As an adult, though, I have to say Lori, because I really relate to Lori's sort of outsiderness, especially at the beginning, sort of being the person who's kind of alone and lonely, but watching other people have fun and kind of wanting to dip into that. And so that's my answer. That is a fabulous answer. We love to have Lori's on this podcast. And Lori has some some very heroic moments in this chapter. We're reading today, chapter 15, A Telegram. It begins quietly and ends with a bang. Uh, Do you want to give us the rundown on what happens in this chapter? Yes, please. Let's jump into this. So we're coming off of chapter 14, which is a real high for Joe. She has sold her two stories. She gets to read one to her family. She's saying, oh, this is, you know, my dearest wishes in the world are to be independent and to earn the praise of my loved one. So we're, you know, that's the end of 14. Then we turn the page and 
an ominous title, a telegram. And we all know what a telegram means in wartime, right? And then, of course, there's the first line. November is the most disagreeable month in the whole year, says Meg, who's always complaining, let's be real. And she's looking out over the frostbitten garden. So it starts off on a real downer note. And the, and the girls, the sisters are all sitting around sort of complaining and moaning and groaning about their lot in life. And Joe, as always, is wanting to fulfill her desire to provide for the family, wishes she could change things and fix things. And Amy chimes in. And then mom comes, Marmy comes and says, any letter from the girls, from father girls. So, you know, again, it's building this dramatic moment to when dear Hannah shows up with the awful telegraph. And Marmy grabs it, snatches it out of her hands and reads, Mrs. March, your husband is very ill. Come at once at Blank Hospital, Washington, D.C. So tragedy has struck. Everything went completely silent in the room. There was nothing but the sound of sobbing. A tragedy has struck the family. And so everyone is upset. They don't know what to do. Of course, Hannah is the one who is the first to recover. She says, right away, we've got to get organized. We've got to get Marmy down there. Everyone sort of takes a role. Everyone's given something to do. And then Lori runs off to go get the horses ready and to buy a train ticket and to send a telegram saying that Marmy's on her way. And Joe laments that there, she wishes there was something that she could do, a little foreshadowing there. Marmy tells Joe to go get some items that she'll have to be a nurse when she arrives, right at the hospital where her husband is. She tells Beth to go to get, ask Mr. Lawrence for wine. She asks Amy to track down a black trunk and Meg to help her get her clothes together because she's so confused and upset. So everybody does their thing. Mr. Lawrence comes back with Beth and says, look, I'm sending Mr. Brooke to accompany you. And Meg has a little moment with Mr. Brooke there. That's sort of a central piece in their relationship as it's blooming. And then everyone wants to know, where's Joe? Everyone does their thing. They come back together and like, has anyone seen Joe? And this is where it gets really juicy. They begin to get anxious and Lori went off to find her. For no one ever knew what freak Joe might take into her head. It's kind of a funny turn of phrase. He missed her, however, and she came walking in with a very queer expression of countenance, for there was a mixture of fun and fear, satisfaction and regret in it, which puzzled the family. She threw down $25, which was a huge sum at the time, I'm sure. And they all said, where on earth did you get this money? And she said, don't worry, I didn't beg, borrow, or steal. And she pulls off her bonnet and she's cut her hair. Possibly one of the most famous scenes of this novel, right? Woo, it's a big one. And of course, the sisters are just in disbelief. They say, oh, you're one beauty, Joe. And she said, you know, look, it doesn't affect the fate of the nation. Calm down, you know. And she said, my head feels deliciously light and cool. And the barber said I would soon have a curly crop, which will be boyish, becoming and easy to keep. So they kind of get over it for a minute and they kind of move on after that. And that night, let's see what happens next, is that night they finally go to bed and they're all going to sleep. Joe's sort of blown the whole thing off like it's not a big deal. But then as they fall asleep, Meg hears her crying. And she says, oh, Joe, are you worried about father? And she said, no, it's my hair. So the fact that she sort of played it off, she said, I guess I'm just being vain. She said that a couple of times. But at the end of the night, they all fall asleep and mom walks around and kisses them all goodnight. And that's sort of the end of that chapter. And one thing I left out was both Marmy and Joe really didn't want to go to Aunt March. I'm kind of obsessed with Aunt March. 
I think it's because I watched the 1933 version again last night and the actress, what's her name? Edna Mae Oliver just really brought that character home for me. She really was a scary character, but they were both, of course, when Aunt March actually did give them some money, but she also sent a note that sort of said, I told you so. Why did he go to the war? Why don't you listen to me? And, you know, Marmy reacts to that. And Joe, that's the whole reason she reacted to it. So that's basically chapter 15. There's a lot to unpack around the haircut that I want to talk with you about. Yeah, that was my thinking is that there's an awful lot happening here related to the civil war, the dynamics of the family, the suffering, the agony. And I have a feeling we're going to zoom right past that to the haircut. (laughs) Well, it's all actually a little bit related because because of you and your research, it got me really fascinated because I'm really fascinated in digging into our ancestry and these people in the 1800s that we don't really know what their true stories are. So then I wanted to look a little bit more into Lou Alcott their story and Joe's story interact so much. And, you know, the haircut itself, Lou Alcott had a haircut. When Louise May Alcott was a nurse in the war, she contracted typhoid pneumonia. And apparently the doctors, without her permission or knowledge, cut all of her hair, like three and a half feet of her hair off. It's a lot of hair. So, you know, I don't really know how that impacted her as a person. I don't know what happened beyond that. But then similarly, here's Joe who cuts her hair kind of on a whim, like at the last minute. It's not one of these sort of, you know, haircuts are a very queer moment. But in this case, it was just sort of, she walked past a barber and saw hair in the window and went for it. She does use the term, you know, that she had that look of fun in her eye when she walked in mixed with other feelings. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, the exact phrasing there, it's something like fun and fear something and regret. So clearly mixed emotions coming from that. I think one important thing, because you mentioned, obviously, this kind of has its roots in, first of all, Bronson Alcott, Lou's father, never went to war. He was too much too old at that point to go to war. The only Alcott family member who served in the Civil War was Lou, who was desperate to be a soldier. Some of the most explicit, I long to be a man, statements come from that period where she's talking about wanting to be a soldier, wanting to go down South and fight. She writes, I long to have a dab at the saucy Southerners. Like she really (laughs) was jonesing to go and fight, but was not able to. We know that there are some people who were born as women and assume the identities of men to go and fight in the civil war. And Alcott didn't go quite that far, but she did enlist as a nurse to go and serve in a hospital where she contracted typhoid fever, as you said, and the haircut there, it was to cool her, to reduce her body temperature, I guess, from from the hair. And it was done when she was delirious. It was not like nobody asked her. So, you know, she woke up from this fever, traumatized and missing her hair. So that would have been the context of the haircut in her real life, which maybe is why Joe is so conflicted about it. She's rewritten it as Joe doing this of her own volition, but almost as if like the spirit is moving her, like she's not able to fully think through the consequences of the action. Although I will say I pulled up the inflation calculator while you were speaking to see exactly how much $25 in 1868 money would be. Do you want to have a guess? Do you want to play the prices right? How much do you think $25 of Joe March money is worth today? Um, 300 Higher. <laughs> a thousand. 
lower. This is how much Joe sold her hair for $508.99. Wow. That would have been a big help. Yeah. Yeah. I would, <laughs> I would cut my hair off too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quite I mean, frankly. Yeah. To me, it's just interesting too, because now we all know the history of her writing this book and how much perhaps pressure the publisher put on any changes. And so I was also wondering about that. Mm. On the one hand, it was fun and it was going to cool her head and give her this boyish, fun, like comfortable haircut for herself that maybe made her feel better, Lou. But on the other hand, there was this sort of morality that went throughout this book. You know, everything, there was a lesson in every chapter, basically. And she said a few times, oh, this solves my vanity problem. I was getting vain of my wig. And so, like, I don't know, I'm like, is that really her feeling about that? Or was this something that the pressures of the moment to write this moral lesson around this? I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I, You know, because this is one of those scenes in the book that really troubles me. I was just, chronologically, I was just editing and releasing Jaya Saxena's episode about chapter nine, Meg Goes to Vanity Fair, which is one of the most like conservative <laughs> chapters in the whole book, right? Meg is really gets a thumping for daring to be feminine. And it winds up with this very progressive lecture from Marmy about how being loved and chosen by a man is the sweetest thing that can happen to a woman. And, and we know damn well that that is not something that Lou Alcott believed, right? Mm -hmm. It is not Lou's sentiment being relayed there. So we know that sometimes Lou sort of pulled her punches or felt compelled to include more, you know, to teach people a lesson about vanity. Sorry. Yeah. And to be palatable to the times and to sell books. I mean, she sort of knew what was expected too in that way. Absolutely. And it's worth noting, we've talked about this in other chapters, so I maybe won't go into like super detail, but we know that upon release of Little Women, the Christian Union banned the book from Sunday school libraries. They cited the play in chapter two as the problem, which is the Christmas play where there's a witch, there are curses, there are spells, there's talk of one character stabbing himself. But notably, that's also the chapter where Joe cross-dresses to play these male roles and plays a very swoon-worthy male love interest to these female characters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we know that the play was a problem and we know that an element of the play was this implied cross-dressing slash quote-unquote female character playing attracted to females. So right. <laughs> it's like it's quite possible that this boyish crop like if joe came home really feeling herself and saying i love this i look yeah. like a boy isn't it fabulous that could be a problem that would have been a bigger problem yeah yeah it's interesting because it is such a just in general i mean to back up for a second you and i met on twitter because mm. i had seen your post about lou alcott and the transness of that person. And, and I was like, what? And then I opened it up and I was like, what? And I like love people who spend the time. Cause I've done this working on a picture book, a nonfiction biography. And we, we all do this, right? If you're queer, you have to read between the lines. You have to look at things closely. I mean, I've been doing this for years and years and years, just as a person, you want to understand who, what our history is 
looking at it from today's perspective, you know, this haircut thing, this haircut piece is a huge flag for the queer community and of self-expression and self-empowerment and all that thing, self-knowledge. So it's just interesting then to read it and say, oh, um, I was kind of hoping it was going to be a little different from that. You know what I mean? I was hoping that she kind of did yeah. it because she wanted to. And then you read it and you're like, oh, okay. It wasn't exactly how I remembered it as a child. But anyway, it's, yeah. it's, still, it's still there, you know, and it has meaning. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. Yeah, it's still there. It has meaning. I think that meaning is, we've already talked about a few factors. I have a feeling we're going to get into a few more. <laughs> it's a very complex thing. It, it, it occurred to me as you were talking that if Joe had come in guns blazing, saying, I love it. I look fabulous. Ta ta ta. Time for my photo shoot. That would be <laughs> tonally at odds with what's happening here, yeah. which is that her father is on his death. Yeah, it wouldn't be the great moment that, yeah, it wouldn't be the perfect moment for that to occur. Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. As I was talking about this, I was remembering reading it originally when I was a kid and remember being so disappointed that she got married at the end. And it's so funny because I mean, how old was I? Like 10? I don't know. I wasn't out yet or anything, but I was like, why was I so disappointed? Kids pick up on so much though. But yeah, I mean, I just remember the haircut. I didn't remember the context of it from from when I was a kid either. So yeah. Um, and you know, we're hopping ahead a little bit here, but you know that Lou Alcott did not want to marry Joe off. Right. He was like very adamant that if it was going to happen, it was not going to be to Lori. That was a very specific thing that she wanted. There was some editorial pressure, but I think the pressure that she really dwells on is the kind of fan mail from young girls who mm-hmm. are begging her to marry Joe to Lori. <laughs> and that really bothered her. She was very determined not to do that. And kind of in part devised the character of Professor Bear and that whole marriage to almost as a middle finger to those young readers. (laughs) Right. And let me tell you, for me as an adult, watching Greta Gerwig's version where she showed that at the end and and incorporated that into the end of the movie and conflated her life in the book, it was so good for me. Mm -hmm. I was like, yes, see, she, you know, she's basically explaining to the viewing audience, this is why this ended this way. It's because it happened in real life to her or whatever. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty genius. Yeah, mm-hmm. likewise. I read somewhere an interview where Greta said, if I couldn't make this movie with an ending that Lou would have liked, then there was no reason to make the movie. Ah, that's <laughs> so good. Yeah, so good. Yeah. There's so many great characters in there. I mean, in the Ant March, just to, as an aside, in the Ant March sweepstakes competition, I love, love, love Meryl Streep's version as well. Oh, yeah. She's just incredible. But when in terms of meanness, it definitely goes to the 1933 version of Aunt March. I mean, she she almost lost me when she tossed her poodle off of her lap, but she was nonetheless very effective as a mean old woman. Yeah, that is. I've watched that movie a couple of times. I watched it first with my dear friend, James Frankie, who I hosted the first episode of this podcast with. And then I watched it again with my parents. And in every case, every person I watched with was just shocked at the way Aunt March yeeted that poodle. Across I know. The I was upset by that. I, I marched on because I, I wanted to see the rest of it. But yeah, she's really, she reminded me of the witch character in, um, movie was that i don't remember but apparently that actress is a direct descendant of the second u.s president john adams just as a crazy aside i just happened to have looked her up these things may be important (laughs) but uh yeah i'm I'm fascinated with some of these side characters that we don't get to talk about very much too which is also hannah 
the live-in help. She played a part in this chapter where she was the one that kind of pulled herself up and said, we have to keep going and we have to get these things organized to get Marmy to father. And uh, she's just sort of always there in the background. I'm, I'm fascinated with, you know, any of the class-based sort of characters that you see in these older stories. And I want to say, hey, I would love to see a story just about Hannah and her life and her experience. And what was it like for her? And What's her view of the March sisters? Well, I would love to read that and maybe you could be the person to write it. I mean, I know I would be first in line. (laughs) There's a great episode I did with Daniel Okrent, who wrote a book about Irish and Italian immigration around this period. And we talked a little bit about the character of Hannah and it sort of tracked with portrayals of Irish people from that era that Hannah would be a domestic, but Hannah is also, she's incredibly sympathetic in this scene. She is really pulling the family together. She is a woman of action. She's maybe even like a wish fulfillment role for the Alcott family who never certainly had hired help. They were way too poor. So it was maybe this fantasy of kind of like an interloper who can like be there in that difficult moment to help out. Notably, we also see Lori, who's an Italian character, again, being portrayed in an incredibly sympathetic light for the era, racing away on his horse to get this telegram to the station, doing whatever he can to take care of the marches. So that comes into play here, which is really yeah. lovely. Yeah. Well, I will say I, I was struck that Hannah was throughout the, the novel and in depictions of cinematic depictions of her, she does seem sympathetic. Oftentimes they'll have these sort of grumpy household help in the background, but she was really, a, I think, a, a positive character for the sisters, which I really liked. What we're almost getting is a vision of the March household as like a two mom household. Yeah. I mean, why not? And also, again, I have you to thank for this, that I know much more about Lou Alcott than I ever knew before. So I read all about their circumstances with Bronson Alcott, basically not providing for them, having some very bizarre, strict thoughts about how the his children should be raised. And so the women, definitely the adult women were depicted very positively and Although the the Lawrence men are quite positive as well. So it's not like she's sort of lopsided in her view, but uh, definitely having father off to war the whole time, you know, now makes sense that he wasn't really present in their life, in Lou Alcott's life, right? He was, I don't know what he was doing exactly. He was very present. He was certainly a, like an overbearing just figure in the household. We know that he struggled with periods of suicidality. Um, John Madison has an excellent biography of Bronson called Eden's Outcasts, which really goes into Bronson's kind of mental state. And essentially he was, I think we can't, again, we can't diagnose people in history, but we, we know that he was suicidal at points. We know that he had extreme difficulty holding down a job, providing an income. So Often Abba Alcott, who was Lou's mother, had to be the one to pick up the slack to work the job to put food on the table. So, you know, it was not a traditional father breadwinner, mother homemaker situation by any means at the Alcott's household. And so I find it really interesting that when she had the chance to reimagine this family structure, the father is just out of the picture. Even when he comes back from war, he is not a prominent figure in the household. And certainly in this scene, the dynamic in the household is between these two adult women caring for one another. So they create this environment where these, you know, these two women are kind of the heads of the household and there are these sisters and Joe is the man of the house. And Lori comes in from this very solitary, lonely, all-male environment and really delights in getting to kind of be part of this 
world of women. We see here, I wanted to know really quickly, he says, can I do anything for you, Madam Mother? Asked Lori, leaning over Mrs. March's chair with the affectionate look and tone he always gave her, which is just so lovely because we know that Lori's mother passed away. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's now comfortable enough to call her mother is really lovely to me. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And and the other piece of that, bringing in the uh, real life of Lou Alcott, I mean, I think that that directly relates to how Joe is always depicted as wanting to provide for the family, because apparently, you know, I'm assuming that as when she was growing up, Lou Alcott, she felt the need to provide for the family because a lot of the writing that she did was done to make money. Right. But yeah, it's fascinating when you get to know these pieces, you peek behind the curtain at the author and see how it relates to directly to the plot of our most famous novel. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting kind of biographical collapse because Lou is at once present in the character of Joe and in the character of the ill father. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, the Joe cutting off her own hair is a sacrifice she makes to save her own life, which might be a reason for some of the regret that she's feeling here. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the bittersweet if that, if that makes sense at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just thinking about it. There's also that interesting line where she says something about it's like an arm or a leg was cut off when her hair was cut yeah. off. And that's sort of relating back to the experience of the war experience too. And sort of, is it like having an arm or a leg cut off? I'm not sure, but. We certainly know that this was a time, this was indeed a time where people were having their arms and legs legs cut off. That was yeah. very much happening. Yeah, exactly. So maybe it wasn't quite like that, but not to get too heavy on us, but mm-hmm. we've talked about our own personal histories and our own queerness in relation to this chapter. And especially you mentioned the experience of a haircut being something that can be so special. Was there a first haircut that you can recall? I mean, I can't, I'm not sure there was a first haircut, but my, if you look back through the years, it sort of progressively got shorter and shorter and shorter. And then, then it just stayed that way, you know, and that's, there's not, not a better feeling. I mean, it's one of those things we talk about this, but queer kids, you know, how they first express themselves, maybe through their clothes, um, because that's something they have control over in their room. And then the haircut is a really big deal. You know, you're, you've got to get probably your parents to, you know, agree to let you get your hair cut a certain way. And so I think that's what adds a lot of significance to this chapter for a lot of people reading it. And they, you know, I think Lou Alcott gives us enough clues in here to demonstrate that she thought it was a great thing. You know, the whole boyish mop and like the smile and things like that, despite all the crying and the vanity and everything. But yeah, I think it's a hugely important any kind of self-expression. I mean, it's, you know, my picture book, you know, is about that a little bit with clothes, you know, you, you know, it's a real thing. It's not like a superficial thing. It's really how you feel inside being expressed to everyone in the world. And there couldn't be anything bigger than that to make you feel good about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we do get a little bit, you know, like Joe loves that this is boyish, she expresses, she's like, I might never have long hair again. I just love this so much. And we can argue about how sincere she's being, but certainly that's a sentiment that she's having. The reason I wanted to bring up haircuts and kind of maybe talk about our own experiences, Joe says here that the haircut is boyish, but you know, there's, there's sort of a difference. This is something that I experienced between having a boyish haircut and really being a boy or looking like a boy convincingly. I remember 
when I was a little kid, my, I, I kind of have kind of, you can see it here. I sort of have kind of puffy, curly, like unruly hair. And when I was a little kid, my mom, like just to manage that always made sure that my, my hair was very short. So in a lot of kind of childhood photos, I, I look like a little boy, <laughs> like it's really giving that. And then as I grew up, what I preferred was sort of the chin length Donna Tart Bob, the Kit Kit Ridge Bob, right? And then in college, I finally, I, I got a pixie cut, right? And it was like, this was the, you know, like the Jennifer Lawrence, Emma Watson, feminine pixie cut. But my dad took me out to lunch and looked at me and said, are you comfortable in your gender identity as a girl? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and what I remember about that, it just immediately conveyed something, <laughs> having this short hair, but I knew, and I certainly was not being mistaken for a boy, right? There was still a wide gulf between me with a short haircut and me being able to present to others as a boy, because gender to an extent is something that other people have to give you. And I think maybe part of Joe's grief here is like the gulf between having a boyish haircut and actually getting to be a boy. And like, sometimes you think that like, I don't know, like, I, this is an experience I've talked about with other trans people, but you think maybe like your first time getting a short haircut or your first time putting on a dress is going to be this amazing validating moment. But sometimes it can just like bring into stark relief the sheer distance between where you are and where you want to be. Mm. And I'm wondering if some of that is maybe at play here with Joe. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah I mean, and then there are different also uh, ways of having short hair. I mean, I was actually confused for a boy a lot, you know, asked what, what are you a lot growing up, but I had longer hair. And even when it sort of got shorter and shorter, it was never really meaningful to me until I got to pick the exact way I wanted it to look like I wanted it to look really like a butch haircut. I want to go to a barber, not to like have a, like a lady short, you know what I mean? That looked like just hideous to me. And so I think it is, it's, it's a question of you having some control over how you feel about it and how you create it. And maybe in this moment, because it was sort of thrust upon her, regardless of whether, you know, she liked it or not, it was not something that maybe she had time to get to the point of figuring it out for herself. So, yeah, it is. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. It's big. You can't deny it. It's something that many of us go through, I, would, I guess I would say, to express ourselves. I don't think you can say it enough because especially how the world is right now for queer and trans people that expressing yourself in any kind of way, whether it's a haircut or your clothes or anything that, like that is very powerful and important. And it's been that way for generations. Like we're reading this book that was written when it was written and it's meant so much to many, I think, queer and trans people through the years for moments like this and for just in general, Joe being gender non-compliant and doing what she wants to do. And Lori also being a very different kind of male character that we've seen in especially these sort of classics that, you know, it's just, you can't say that enough. And, and I also want to say to you personally, I think that it's for you to honor Lou Alcott in this way and do this scholarly research that you've done. And this research is just really amazing and important. I mean, we all need ancestors and we don't have enough of this kind of knowledge out there for, for us to partake in and to understand. So thank you for doing that. And I'm, I'm so you know happy to be on the podcast for that reason, because I think it's super important what you're doing. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Like I, I was so thrilled when I was looking through people who'd responded to the thread on Twitter. And I was so excited just when I saw your bio, I was so interested in the work you were doing. So I'm delighted that you're here, that we're talking about this. You know, we, we talk about Lou Alcott being an ancestor for a reason, like as much as kind of this gender non-conforming impulse, this proto-queer trans impulse comes through in Joe, it's even louder in the letters, the journals, kind of the archival material that Lou left behind. So I wanted to read a couple, just because we were talking about kind of this haircut and looking boyish being like a fraud experience for Joe. I wanted to read to you a couple of excerpts from Lou's letters that are specifically about kind of experiences where she got to present in a more boyish way, or even in one case, pass as a man and how exciting that was for her. So let me read these to you and you can tell me what you think. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is where she's she's traveling in the mountains and she's writing letters to her good friend, Alfie Whitman, who inspired Lori. This is kind of a camping trip that she's on. So she writes, ladies in old hats, men's coats, and no hoops on their backs, for the fashions are of no account up there and everyone tumbles about in a full and easy style that just suited me. So that's <laughs> that's one thing. She's just really cherishing this opportunity to wear like men's coats and no oh, hoops. Yeah. And while in this camping trip, some of the horse and buggy equipment breaks down or I don't know. <laughs> the trace is so she writes when the trace broke. So demented was my state that I offered a stout green garter to mend the fracture and immortalize that humble article of dress by assisting in the perilous descent of Mount Washington. So, <laughs> yeah. And so she was, yeah. Like you can see her just being so happy to be free in doing what yeah. she doing something that was not expected, I guess, or just in general, the ability to do it without being harassed by people for doing it. Exactly. Like just being able to, you know, wear a men's coat and dress in a full and easy style that suits you. And, you know, I don't need this garter. So let me use it to repair this. Yeah. You know, I, this, this. I think part of, as a child, my reading it, I would always get put off by the dresses you know, I would read this and I want to be really excited, but then they would be talking about dresses. You know, I was like, no, 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 I don't get it. I don't understand that part. But anyway, that that's just an aside. I'm amazed at how much there is out there about Lou Alcott's life and that most people don't know about. So I mean, no, is, no. is the end result, are you going to write something about this Am I, that we can all read? Because are you putting this all together? <laughs> yeah, I... It hasn't been announced yet, but like the reason I undertook this research in the first place, I'm working on a modern adaptation of Little Women where Joe and Lori are queer kids who meet online. And so <laughs> Yes. That sounds awful. Yeah. And so when I set I set out to do this research is because I, I didn't want to make any decisions about this project until I felt that I could really honor Lou's spirit. Mm-hmm. And it just went so much deeper than <laughs> I even realized. There's one more letter that I wanted to read. This is another letter to Alfie Whitman. She's been to a, this is a like a costume party. And she's writing to Alfie. She says, I was a monk and no one knew me, even after we unmasked, for a black beard and cowl changed me into a jolly friar and made great fun. The boys called me sir, pushed me around in the dressing room and asked me to tie and pin them up, supposing I was a man. And the girls flirted in earnest till I took my beard off when they shouted. Oh, my God. I love it. Yep. <laughs> it was her dream come true. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Like she had so much joy out of just passing as a man. Yeah. And, and then she, that really informs that ch- it was a chapter two with the play and the, you know, her getting to dress as, as a boy or man in the play. I love it. Yeah. Even the delight in the girls flirting. 
mm-hmm. is very exciting, I'm sure. <laughs> when Lou Alcott was asked to write a girl's story, she said, I, I don't enjoy this sort of thing and never liked girls or knew many except my sisters. <laughs> so, you know, and likewise, she said toward the end of her life, I have been in love in my life with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man. But there's no real, as with some other queer women of that period, like Virginia Woolf, there's no like romantic correspondence with women in Lou's archives. And Joe doesn't have like a, you know, like Anne of Green Gables has Diana. There's no real like bosom buddy for Joe. (laughs) Sometimes her comments toward Meg can get a little bit romantic. Even in this chapter, Meg is grumbling about how bored she is. And Joe says, oh, I don't wonder. I don't much wonder, poor dear, for you see other girls having splendid times where you grind, grind year and out. Oh, don't I wish I could fix things for you as I do for my heroines. You're pretty enough and good enough already. So I'd have some rich relation leave you a fortune unexpectedly. Then you dash out as an heiress, scorn everyone who has slighted you, go abroad and come home my lady something in a blaze of splendor and elegance. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, Meg, you're so pretty. I love you. I want to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, and she, and Joe's also really close to her mom too. Or Marmy, there's there are a couple of scenes even in this chapter 15 where, you know, she and Marmy both are, are opposed to Aunt March in the same way, and there's a closeness there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before about the researching the history. It's something that we all do collectively as a community. Anyway, I think trying to figure out, well, even currently people, whether or not they're gay or queer or trans or whatever now, but especially historical figures, you know, like one that I've researched before that shall not be named because I'm kind of maybe working on something, but there are some letters, but you know, they wrote so glowingly of each other back in the day. It's hard to tell, but in this case, in fact, it is sort of well known that, that she was in a relationship with another woman. So it's too bad there's, there's not any for Lou Alcott in that way, because that gives a sliver of, you know, of reality. But it's frustrating. You know, you have to just uh, read between the lines and see what you can um, find. Yeah, I think that impulse is very much present here. I think in kind of just the way that Joe talks about Meg, and I know it's a little bit awkward because that's her sister, but like... <laughs> There are moments in the book where Joe says, like, I wish I could just marry Meg. Just, <laughs> just like, okay. <laughs> but I, I think it really, we, we talked a little bit about how, you know, this relationship just between Hannah and Marmy, it turns into this into a household where, like, essentially this is a two-mom household, which is fun. We have a few minutes left. One parting note I wanted to quote from is my friend Daniel Lavery wrote this piece called The Chaste and Plucky Heroine Thwarted Again. And this is an excerpt from that. And I think it just, it applies so well to, this is such a trope. And I think it applies so well to Joe. Like Joe is probably one of the originators, if not the originators of this. So let me just read. Okay. Okay. Danny is talking about this trope in kind of children's literature of the chaste and plucky tomboy heroine, but okay. Father is ill. One, I shall bind my breasts and disguise myself as a boy doctor. I will prescribe powerful medicines and prove once and for all that girls with sunburnt legs can be trusted with prescription pads. Two, I shall bind my breasts and disguise myself as a boy peddler, smuggling myself off-world on a caravan of thieves in order to maintain the family fortune. Three, I shall bind my breasts and disguise myself as a boy so that... Four, I should really just bind my breasts over this, (laughs) see if that helps bring father's fever down. Five, I mean, it can't hurt. Six, don't you want father to get better? 
seven. Look, just as a general policy, you can assume that if anyone in the family gets sick, just to be on the safe side, I'm going to bind my breasts. <laughs> Eight, and get one of those great kind of flowy tunicky shirts that sometimes men wear that are loose-ish, but also practical and really highlight the manifold charms of the masculine torso. Nine, and I'll have a sick as fuck scar under my right eye and call myself Randolph. Ten, I, I mean, if it'll help father. 11. Did you know sometimes guys kiss other guys? (laughs) 12. Listen, before you say anything, hear me out. First, I bind my breasts so everyone thinks I'm a boy. (laughs) And that's That's awesome. That's, that's, you know, Joe's having a real moment of that. What is the chapter? Wait, what's the name of that essay you just read? Um, I'll I'll link to it in the chat in the show notes. It's called The Chaste and Plucky Heroine yeah. Thwarted Again. That's so funny that they use the word plucky because that's like some more thing. I'm like, why do they always make, you know, why is it a plucky thing? Like, I, I don't get that. It's always used to describe these girls and, and they, they never get, at the end of the day, they're sort of like, you know, left to take care of everyone else, but they never get loved. That's just what Joe wanted, right? She wanted to be loved in, to, for herself, not yeah joe i mean it's i i love that moment in i i feel like the the most common phrase uttered if there was a word cloud of this podcast it would be the biggest ones would be in the greta gerwig movie yeah Yeah, the the greta gerwig film sort of fixed a lot of things for a lot of us or like feelings about a lot of things i think yeah she gives that beautiful speech she says women they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts And they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty. I'm so sick of people saying that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it, but I'm so lonely, Mm. right? It's Mm. (laughs) just really balancing those two impulses. Like it's, yeah. I, one thing I also love about that speech throughout the movie, Greta really intentionally makes space for reading Joe as trans or non-binary and You'll notice like there's a very careful sleight of hand in that speech. She says, women, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts. They've got ambition. They've got talent. I'm so sick of women's people saying that love is just all a woman is fit for, but I'm so lonely. It's almost like she's not necessarily in that speech, even including herself in the category of woman, women, 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 but I, mm, which is something that I, I've noted. And I think- comes through here because like in Little Women, there's a very clear delineation between Joe and the way that all of the other female characters enact their gender, right? You know, Joe like states quite often that she wants to be a boy, that she is a boy. She's called like man of the house, fellow, like mm-hmm. so she's she's juggling a lot. Poor Joe. She's <laughs> she's going through it. Yeah, she really is. And Again, they always get it at the end of the story. It's like, you know, the lesbians always die at the end, historical stories or whatever. It's just like the plucky girl always at the end is the one that has to provide and has to show up and do things for everyone else. And that's what Joe's going through. Yeah. In your picture book, I mean, in Molly's tuxedo, does she also have to sacrifice everything and get a miserable ending? I mean, I'm sure that's where that's going. (laughs) She definitely does not. She proves that the best way to feel good is to be yourself. And that's what we all want to be, right? We want Joe to be herself. We wish Lou could be herself. We don't know exactly (laughs) who that is, but we know that maybe she struggled with that a little bit. It would be fascinating to hear more from her. I wish there were more that we could read about that from her. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I will recommend any reader who's interested, the selected letters of Louisa May Alcott, edited by Joel Meyerson, Daniel Sheely, Madeline B. Stern. That's available. Like all of her letters are published. The same group edited her journals. So like that's available. I, I don't, not as widely available maybe as it should be, but like you can go out and get those books if you're interested. And obviously like come back every week to this podcast we'll be <laughs> talking about about this a lot. Vicky, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. I am really excited to read Molly's Tuxedo. That's out next year. In the meantime, I mean, where can people find your work? Where can they get in touch with you? Yeah. And also you have to say when you write a picture book, you have to shout out the illustrator because they really bring it to life. And the amazing Jillian Reed illustrates Molly's Tuxedo. She also illustrated Queer Eyes, Jonathan Van Ness's picture book about a non-binary guinea pig called Peanut goes for the gold. It's amazing. I'm super excited. I just saw the first sketches. So I had to have to call out Jillian on that. You can find me at my website, Vicki Johnson Writes. Dot com is spelled V-I-C-K-I. I'm also at Vicki Johnson Writes on Instagram and Vicki Johnson on Twitter. So please come say hi. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much again for being here, Vicki. My name is Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca. And I will see you all next week. We have the amazing Kathleen Gross coming to talk about her graphic novel adaptation of Little Women, Joe, which is lovely. And spoiler alert, does give her... Not the traditional plucky tomboy ending. Let's just say that. All right. <laughs> oh, can't wait. All right. Thank you again, Vicky. This has been so amazing.